0: Blog Talk Radio A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we are going to be continuing our ongoing investigation into the body politic of the United States, especially in light of our current electoral season, uh, where so much is uh, dominating our news about the Democrats and the Republicans and who's who, Mitt Romney and President Obama and the way they get their messages out. And to help us with that today, because the presidential national televised debates has been such a forum for really most Americans really learning about the nature of uh, the policies and the positions of both candidates, sad as that may be, it is the case, and we need to be able to open up that forum to a much larger number of possible candidates, such as the third party candidates who have been routinely excluded, as you all know, as we all know, from this debate process. And there are reasons for it, and the reasons will startle you if you find out what they are. And it's for this reason that I have invited George Farah, the author of No Debate, to be our guest for our show today. And joining us for the latter part of the show is the presidential candidate for the Justice Party, uh, Rocky Anderson. And it is possible that Jill Stein, the presidential candidate for the Green Party, will be joining us, too. It was a very last-minute invitation on a better world's part. I don't know if she'll be able to join us. But if so, uh, she will be and will have our own form of discussion about uh, the nature of the televised national debates in this country. First, a few words about our main guest, George Fraw, who is a lawyer and an antitrust lawyer at that. He, unlike so many lawyers, but yes, like a few, like Ralph Nader, has been doing the work of the people and behalf on behalf of the people as well. I should say, Rocky Anderson, who was a uh, lawyer, antitrust as well, and very much a humanitarian one for 21 years before he got himself into politics as the former mayor now of Salt Lake City. George Farah has a very interesting background. Uh, He is, first of all, the executive director and founder of Open Debates, and is an attorney at Cohen, Milstein, Sellers & Toll. He's had articles published in the Boston Globe, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Washington Post, the Denver Post, and other publications. He's been on Bill Moyer's show, now with Bill Moyers. He's been on CBS Evening News with Dan Rather, NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw, Lou Dobbs, Countdown with Keith Olbermann. He's been on the, in the national spotlight when it comes to this whole subject of debates and getting to the nitty-gritty of them, who's behind them, who controls them. And now tonight, folks, he is joining me, Mitchell Raven, on A Better World Radio. So let me see if George is in the wings with us now. And if so, I will bring him on and we will carry on today's very important show to discuss these matters. George, are you on the line? I am, Mitchell. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining us. This is such a hot topic, George, and so few people really know the real lay of the land, which your book so magnificently lays out in, in technicolor I mean truly it's so undemocratic that it's really quite, it's hard to believe it's really hard to believe would you just lay out the fundamentals that you cover in your book and what it is we're really facing as a nation that seeks to be or talks about itself as democratic but yet it's most fundamental democratic practice of conducting fair and equitable uh, debates and in, in the electoral process are completely undemocratic.
1: Absolutely. Please, just
0: speak and let's lay it out for
1: us. Sure. So from 1976 until 1984, the League of Women Voters ran the presidential debates, by far our most important election events. And the League of Women Voters did an absolutely fantastic job with the presidential debates as our champion, that is, as an advocate for the public interest. In 1980, independent candidate John B. Anderson was running for president. Uh, He had about 12% in the polls, and the League of Women Voters insisted that John B. Anderson be allowed to participate in the presidential debates, despite the objections of then-President Carter. In other words, the League stood up to the president of the United States and said, hey, John Anderson ought to be in these debates because the majority of Americans want to see him in the debates. To fast forward four years later, you got a fascinating situation where the Walter Mondale campaign and the um, Ronald Reagan campaign try to get rid of all the difficult questions being asked in the debates. The league had proposed 80 different moderators to host the debates, and each time they proposed a moderator, either the Mondale or the Reagan campaign vetoed them. Well, the League didn't just accept this kind of machinations silently. They held a press conference and lambasted the candidates for trying to get rid of difficult questions. And as a, result, with the, as a result of the public outcry, the candidates had to accept the League's moderators for the subsequent debates. You fast forward one more time to 1988, and you have Michael Dukakis and George Bush drafting a secret contract, a secret contract that will dictate the terms of the debates, a 12-page contract that discussed how the format will be structured, how high the podiums will be, even what the temperatures will be in the auditorium. And those two campaigns, the Republican and Democratic campaigns, gave the contract to the league and said, hey, implement this. The league said, you're crazy. We're not going to implement a secretly negotiated contract. Instead, the league made the contract public and held a press conference denouncing the campaigns for, quote, perpetrating a fraud on the American people, end quote. Well, it's precisely because the league, was such a champion of the public interest and so willing to stand up to the major parties that the Republican and Democratic parties got together in 1987 and created an organization called the Commission on Presidential Debates. This organization sounds like a government agency. It sounds like a nice, neutral, comfortable, pleasant group that really cares about democracy. The reality is it's a corporate-funded bipartisan tool of the two parties, and instead of doing what the League did every four years, Now, under the commission's control, the candidates meet behind closed doors, draft the contract that dictates everything from who gets to to, to participate in the debates to how they will be structured, gives the contract to the commission, and the commission implements and conceals the contract. So the very thing that the league denounced in 1988 is now part and parcel of the debates that the commission sponsors. And what makes it particularly egregious, Mitchell, is that when the commission doesn't does it, when they are the ones sponsoring the debates, implementing the contracts and concealing them, they take all the heat. If a third party candidate is excluded, or if the format is uh, poorly structured or not challenging, the commission takes the blame, not the candidates. So the commission ends up being a a convenient tool that allows the candidates to do whatever they want to sanitize our most important public forums without actually having to pay a political price.
0: And What has been the public response to such knowledge?
1: Well, uh, you know, the, 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 the commission survives on secrecy. So long as the American people are duped, essentially, which is what the League accused the commission of eventually doing, so long as the American people are duped by the commission, Uh, They never know what outrages are happening behind closed doors. When we reveal this, when I published my book uh, a couple years ago, several years ago, uh, describing exactly what happened, my organization Open Debates raises the issue aggressively every four years. When we reveal what's actually happened, the outrage is remarkable. It doesn't matter what your political background is. It doesn't matter if you're a right-wing conservative, a left-wing liberal, uh, a moderate, or anything around that spectrum in between, however you define yourself. Everybody is universally outraged that our most important public forums have been hijacked by an organization with primary loyalties to the two major parties, not principal loyalties to democracy and the democratic process, and that we're paying a a, a very significant price and that important third-party voices are being excluded, and difficult questions and issues are not being raised in debates, and we're facing a very limited number of debates because the candidates are doing whatever they can to avoid.
0: Now... The League of Women Voters published that secret memorandum back in was it 1988? Exactly. They published that memorandum. What was the and where was it published?
1: They issued a press release just including a copy of that memorandum because despite the candidates' uh, uh, desires, they wanted to make sure the process was as transparent as humanly possible. I mean, it's really, Mitchell, just, you know, the great way to think about the League versus the Commission is that the League was our voice in the negotiating room with the candidates. Of course the candidates are going to try to manipulate these forums, but the point is you need to sponsor that as a champion of the vote public interest, whereas now the Commission is complicit in whatever the candidates want, and uh, and works in opposition to the public interest. But, yes, the contract was published in 1988 by the League when they issued a press release and made it public. And do you know what newspapers published it, George? Uh, I know that it was widely reported in 1988. I think virtually every major newspaper in the country reported on the fact that the League uh, was denouncing the candidates for putting together this contract and eventually had to withdraw a sponsor because, you know, this was all set up by design. The league rejected the contract, yes. and then the commission, which had been created just one year earlier, steps in and says, hey, we'll happily implement the very contract that the league had just denounced. And that is how the commission seized control of the debates, by implementing the same contract that the league called a form of fraud. And, you know, when the league withdrew was sponsor at that point, they said and i this is a quote they said we will not be an accessory to the hoodwinking of the american people and what we've seen ever since 1988 is that continuation of the hoodwinking of the american people every four years
0: yes no i i, I so appreciate the points that you're making here
1: i'm i'm concerned
0: because I think I was one of the people hoodwinked back in 1988. <laughs> because I, I don't remember the publication of that report by the League of Women Voters, and I'm, now I'm deeply concerned that I did not know of it. <laughs> I want to know where yeah. it was published, you know, maybe in the Socialist Workers' Party, you know. <laughs> Publications. No, but if it was in the New York Times, you would think that would have caused tremendous public outrage, and even possibly that the Congress would have stepped in in some measure, but unfortunately, it appears that they were in their own way tacitly complicit with the process itself being uh, handed over to the Commission.
1: I agree wholeheartedly, Mitchell. You know, it's also partly, uh, 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 you know, there was a substantial outrage, and the outrage was primarily focused on format and and issues of structure of the debates, but it was a little bit of a different time. You know, in 1988, there weren't prominent third-party voices yet arising on the political spectrum. The parties had substantially greater loyalties amongst the voting public. At the time, independents only comprised around 15 to 20 percent of the population. Today, 40% 40% of the country counts themselves as independents, and there's a much greater yearning for a third-party voice to emerge. So the idea Indeed. at the time that the two parties would control the debate, rather than an independent, genuinely nonpartisan sponsor, caused less outrage in 1988 than it would 30 years later. And this is a, I think this is a perfectly natural evolution of our political process. I don't think also anyone possibly imagined that the 12-page contract that was created in 1988 would balloon to the 36-page contracts that we're seeing now. In other words, that the candidates would not just you know, tweak things like the heights of podiums and demand certain color backdrops on stage, but they would do things like exclude explicitly a third-party voice like Ross Perot in 1996, or they would do specific things like prohibit the candidates from talking to each other or asking follow-up questions. In other words, I don't think anyone could have imagined at the time uh, that, they, that the manipulations by the candidates behind closed doors would have developed to such an anti-democratic degree.
0: Indeed, indeed.
1: In light of this, I know the the outrage that
0: I experience in your describing this, and that is implicit in your book as a call to justice and uh, as a as a vehicle for informing the American people about how indeed we are being hoodwinked, as the league so properly uses the phrase. Uh, what? How in the world did Ross Perot get his way into the debates that were then being um, handled by the commission? This is, in my
1: opinion, the, 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 the Perot story, which took place over two election cycles, is by far the most fascinating and, and demonstrates uh, quite clearly the role the commission plays in our democracy. So in 1992, Ross Perot ran for president for the first time. And at one point, he even captured the league in the polls, but then he withdrew from the race, and his poll numbers kind of plummeted. But when he returned to the race, he was polling at about eight or nine percent in the polls. Now President Bush, at the time, the first President Bush, was running for reelection against Governor Clinton. And President Bush reasoned that Pro was taking more votes away from Bill Clinton than himself. He, that's what it's, mm-hmm. that's the analysis that his own team conducted. And so they said, you know what, we want Perot in the debates to steal votes away from challenging Governor Bill Clinton. And they they, they demanded it. They told the commission, we demand that Ross Perot be in the debates. Bill Clinton, meanwhile, didn't want to alienate all the pro voters. He knew that if he was publicly accused of being the one candidate who refused to debate Perot, he would suffer in the polls. So he went along with Bush's insistence. What did the commission do? Did the commission welcome Ross Perot with open arms? No. The commission first said, we can't have this. We can't have Ross Perot on stage. He'll help build a viable third party. Bush insisted, no, he must be in there. Then the commission responded and said, fine, let's let Ross Perot in one of the three debates. We've got to keep this guy out of here. We've got to maintain and protect the two-party system. President Bush insisted some more. So eventually the commission relented because that's its job, is to relent to the wishes of the two major party candidates, and Perot was included. So the big misunderstanding the public has often about this issue is they somehow think the commission invited Perot. No, Perot was included for for one reason and one reason only. President Bush insisted on his inclusion because of a political strategic calculation, which ended up backfiring, by the way, because Perot ended up taking more votes away from him. If you fast forward four years later, Perot was running for re-election again. This time, he has $29 million of our taxpayer funds because he got 19% of the vote back in 1992 because of his debate performance. He was widely deemed the winner of the debates, and he got the most votes the third party has gotten since 1912, since Teddy Roosevelt in 1912. He was running for election again in an effort to build his reform party, build a viable alternative to Democrats and Republicans. 76% of the public wanted pro in the actual 1996 presidential debate. What happens this time? Bob Gold. Republican, running for president, against Bill Clinton, running for re-election. Bob Dole has the opposite conclusion that his predecessor reached. He realizes that Perot is taking more votes away from him. So he's terrified of Perot being included in the presidential debates, rising in the polls at his expense. So he demands that Ross Perot be excluded. Meanwhile, President Bill Clinton doesn't want anyone to watch the debates. He's comfortably winning in the polls by 18 to 20 points, He doesn't want anyone watching these debates and possibly risking his lead, So he tells Dole, I'll exclude Perot on the condition that we cancel one debate and we schedule the remaining two debates opposite the World Series of Baseball so no one watches them. And that's exactly what happened. You had this disgusting agreement reached. Where Perot was excluded, one debate was canceled, and the remaining two debates were scheduled of the World Series, and, and by, by design, it was the lowest watched debates in the history of presidential debates. Clinton got what he wanted. It, what George Stephanopoulos told me was a non-event. They wanted to make the debates a non-event, and they succeeded. So this, this shows you just how outrageous the process is. Perot was basically a political tool. In, it was, in 1992, he was included by, by virtue of President Bush's demands. By 1996, he was excluded by virtue of Bob, Do- Bob Dole's demands. The commission went along with whatever the candidates wanted. So this is why uh, the Reform Party was also killed in its tracks. The very Reform Party that was, was built in 1992 and had tens of millions of dollars in taxpayer funds and millions of voter support that growth of that party was fundamentally stunted and halted in its tracks when pros excluded 1996 presidential debates. It's an awesome and daunting
0: history that you are laying out for us here, George. We are spending the hour with George Farah, who is the author of No Debate How the Republican and Democratic Parties Secretly Control the Presidential Debates. He is a lawyer in his own right, an antitrust lawyer. He, like Ralph Nader and many others, are doing the work of the people in law, and he has become known for blowing the whistle on this debate process, the nationally televised debates, that we Americans mainly have no clue about what's really behind it. It is manipulated. It is controlled by a completely... Bipartisan, meaning both partisan uh, Parties To keep the United States electoral process In the hands of two parties Democrat and Republican Both equally culpable for this manipulation The League of Women Voters, as George was telling us Has been excluded from the process Because they were doing the will of the people By demanding proper disclosure of information of uh the league essentially controlling the fundamental important tenets of each televised debate and the whole thing has devolved into the hands of the commission for well, what is the full name of it the commission, the commission for national debate, debate. Of presidential debates. This is a horror show. You are listening to A Better World Radio with Mitchell J. Rabin. Please visit us at our website at www.abetterworld.tv to learn more about this kind of phenomenon and more about the work that George Farrar is bringing forward to the public. Well, I want to open up the uh, next portion of the show with a, a quote that I, I well... Uh, Let me say this, I was riding on the subway to one of the high holy days of Judaism just last night, Yom Kippur, the opening, and uh, I started laughing out loud on the subway, George, at a quote that you had here regarding the, I so appreciated this, inclusion about what happened uh, around John B. Anderson being included in the debates, according to the League of Women Voters, who allowed him to do so, despite the protestations of then-President uh, Carter. and uh, It says this, the League had even planned to place an empty chair on stage to illustrate Carter's cowardice, but their lawyers advised against it. Johnny Carson, then host of the Tonight Show, said, what bothers me is, suppose the chair wins. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was good. <laughs> that was good, Johnny. I, mean, I think we all have to be concerned about that. The chair would win. <laughs> the incumbent and. <laughs> <laughs> the opposing presidential candidate. Well, I think that that is exactly the fear that completely dominates this commission and, of course, the parties that uh, the commission represents. There's nothing impartial about it. There's nothing for the people. And that has to do with the presence, the qualified presence of several Third-party candidates that exist now, and that existed in the past. Uh, in fact, there have always been third-party candidates in the U.S. electoral process, even though clearly they've been marginalized from the beginning.
1: Can you talk about that a little, that history a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, uh, let, let me let me just um, describe maybe some of the value first, uh, the value that third parties can play, and why their inclusion in the presidential debates is so important. You know, first of all. Uh, if you include a third-party candidate in the presidential debates, they might actually win. In Minnesota, for example, Jesse Ventura was <laughs> yes. running for election. He was at 10% in the polls. That's it. He was just at 10% in the polls. And the League of Women Voters and the local television NPR chapter uh, decided to host eight pre- uh, governor, uh, excuse me, gubernatorial debates in Minnesota. So he was running for governor of Minnesota in 1988. The League of Women Voters and, and local NPR chapter said, let's host eight televised debates. They said we're going to include Jesse Ventura because the vast majority of Minnesotans wanted to see him. He was at 10% of the polls, and they did. And after eight debates, he rose from 10% of the polls to 37% and won the race. And when he was asked, Jesse, how'd you do it? How'd you win? He said I was allowed to win. It's that simple. The second thing is, you know, even if third-party candidates don't win, Third-party candidates historically have raised absolutely critical issues that are being ignored by the major parties. And when they raise those issues, backed by substantial support, they force the major parties to co-opt those issues. You know, third-party candidates introduced the women's right to vote, the abolition of slavery, public schools, pension funds, unemployment compensation, child labor laws. Uh, paid vacation, minimum wage, social security, forty-hour work week. I mean, the number of things they've introduced have been critical to the quality of life that we live today. When they are now excluded from the presidential debates, we're not allowing voices to break a kind of bipartisan conspiracy of silence on critical issues. For example, you know, look at two thousand. Uh, Al Gore was running against George W. Bush. George H. W., excuse me, George W. Bush in two thousand. Mm-hmm. Ralph Nader and Pat Buchanan were also running. 64% of the public wanted to see Nader and Buchanan in the debates, but, of course, they were excluded. Well, Buchanan and Ralph Nader – 64%. 64%. And Ralph Nader and Pat Extraordinary. Buchanan, they're critical of trade agreements. They're critical of the drug war. They're critical of foreign policy issues that both Al Gore and George Bush agree on. In other words, the different points of view on these fundamentally critical issues are being excluded, Not not just – uh, you know, because from the, from Congress, but also from national political discourse, by virtue of excluding these third party voices, so it, it ends up being a form of sort of ideological containment. We're not allowing fresh ideas and fresh voices to enter the political spectrum uh, and, and regenerate our political process. Uh, you know, and one of the things, Rocky, the, you know, the one, excuse me, one of the things Mitchell that drives me completely crazy, is the commission's justification for this. I mean, this Mitchell is uh, ridiculous. Well, if you ask the commission. Yes. You know, why aren't you including? Why aren't you including these candidates that the vast majority of American people want to see? The commission says, "Oh, we understand," but you know, hundreds of people run for president every four years. Hundreds of people, including John of the Crustacean Liberation Party. Uh, and these guys are crazy, and they want to occupy right. the moon, and they want, to, you know, they want to liberate lobsters, and this is their crazy policies, and we can't have a stage <laughs> with hundreds of microphones. But Mitchell, this is an absolute lie. It's a distortion. Yes, hundreds yes. of people do run for president every, every four years, but in never in, in the last 100 years at no time have more than seven candidates in a given election year been on enough ballots to actually have a mathematical chance of winning the presidency. So even if you have the most liberal criteria in the world, which we don't have to advocate, but even if you do have the most liberal criteria in the world and said, let's just include everyone who's on enough state ballots, you would never mm-hmm. have more than seven candidates on stage, which is no more than a can than the number of candidates that existed in the Republican primary debates. So I mean yes. the commission is just lying to you when they say this is an impossibility. Yes. It's not. Yes.
0: Well, you know, I came across all of this, George, <clears throat> firsthand myself when uh, another third-party candidate named John Hagelin, Doctor John Hagelin, award-winning physicist from Harvard University, ran in the Natural Law Party initially in 1992, then in '96, <clears throat> and last in the year 2000. And in fact, the Reform Party. In the year 2000, endorsed him as their candidate. So the Natural Law Party had sufficient funds to get themselves on the ballot in all 50 states. A remarkable feat in itself. And that, by the way, is a whole other debacle. I'm calling this the debate debacle, and that the ballot access debacle is another way of the clamping down of both the Democratic and Republican parties on a state level to exclude any viable third-party candidate they have made getting, gaining ballot access virtually impossible in way too many states. Across the country, and that may be something that Rocky Anderson may even address in uh, the upcoming part of today's show. Uh, but of course, the, the educational portion that you're focused on, the debate itself, is is central to the entire process. I, I'm in complete accord with it. But I remember when I was friendly with John Hagelin's lawyer. John actually wanted me to run, funnily enough, in the natural law party for senator in New York State just when Hillary Clinton was running. And he said to me, oh, you can beat her. (laughs) Very funny, John. But uh, anyway, I wasn't interested in that. I said, I want to be your advisor and rather help you win. (laughs) That's more my my position. (laughs) But uh, in any event, uh, his lawyer ended up giving up the practice of law and certainly gave up politics after the debacle they had in Washington DC when they were excluded from the debate even though they they matched all the criteria all the criteria i thought they were dealing with the federal election commission and maybe you can clarify and distinguish the differences between the two the commission on presidential debates and the federal election commission which also sounds very federal but i believe that i learned that it's not very federal at all except if federal express is Federal, and uh, <laughs> I heard I heard from his lawyer who is completely crestfallen about the nature of democracy and the state of democracy in our country going back to that year when John Hagelin was excluded, and it was just debilitating to learn some of the inside story of how Washington actually manipulates politics to such an extent that the average American has no clue goes on. So uh, do you remember that
1: that portion absolutely. of our history? Yeah, a- absolutely. You know, I, first let me just comment on one of the for earlier things you were saying. Yeah, I, I couldn't Please. agree with you more, Mitchell, that that the debate exclusion process is just part and parcel of a whole system that is designed to keep third-party voices out, from whether it's scant media coverage or the ridiculous uh, ballot access uh, obstacles that third parties face or massive fundraising disparities uh, and, and of course, just the reflexive loyalty that most voters have to to the two parties. There are existing structural barriers that make it virtually impossible for any third party to penetrate. Uh, the, the national political stage. And so when they do, when they actually arrive on that stage, and they actually get on a majority of state ballots, and the vast majority yeah. of voters do want to see them in the presidential debates, what right does a private corporation, principally financed by anheuser Bush and controlled by the two parties, have to tell the American <laughs> people, I'm sorry, you can't see him? Hey, but you know, just <laughs> yeah. going back to the legal issues that you raised so one of the more fascinating things about this is is the limited challenges that we can pursue against the commission. So the Federal Election Commission is a distinct entity from the Commission on Presidential Debates. The Commission on Presidential Debates is simply a private corporation under the control of the two parties, whereas the Federal Election Commission is a government agency. And it's, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be making sure that our elections uh, comply with the law and that our debate process itself also complies with the law. Well, after 1996, Mm -hmm. after Ross Perot was summarily excluded, despite clearly meeting the criteria that the commission had laid out, which at the time was a very amorphous criteria, an investigation was launched by the head lawyer at the Federal Election Commission, Larry Noble. He's a wonderful guy, committed to the democratic process, and he conducted an investigation. And he ultimately released a 30-some page report, saying that something's not right here. This debate sponsor is not nonpartisan as required by law. It is not staying out of the political process as required by law. On the contrary, it is implicitly supporting the two parties by unfairly excluding third-party voices that are meeting criteria. And he recommended to the Federal Election Commission that they launch a full investigation and possibly penalize the Commission on Presidential Debates. Well, get this. Mitchell, the Federal Election Commission is comprised of six people, three of whom are Democrats, three of whom are Republicans, both appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. They have absolutely zero political interest in investigating the commission. So despite Larry Noble's very, very persuasive 30-some page report, they rejected his recommendation and refused to investigate the commission. So this is, you know, it's all locked in. You can't. It's very difficult to challenge the commission on any legal grounds because the oversight agency itself is a bipartisan entity that doesn't have any political interest in investigating the commission. And and, and politically, it's very difficult to displace the commission because so long as the two major party candidates only agree to participate in debates sponsored by the commission, every other debate held out there is ignored by the major press. So, you know, this really is, as an antitrust lawyer, I could say this quite honestly. This is an illegal monopoly. It is a ridiculous monopoly, and our job politically needs to be to break this monopoly to allow for more competitive sponsors, more competitive debates, and return the debates ultimately in the hands of sponsors like the League to champion the public interest, not the interest of any parties, regardless of whether it's third parties or major parties.
0: Well stated, George, truly well stated, and I I couldn't agree with you more as well. It's just we either have a democracy or we don't. I would tell you that if we were told of this story without identifying the national identity of where this is happening, we'd say among ourselves, this must be happening in a third world country. You know, That's that's a
1: great point it's uh
0: you, you know, know you, 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 this would yeah. not yeah this would not happen in a so-called civilized western developed country be it the United States or a western european country nor you know it were australia new zealand it would not be happening you've got to be getting, and in fact i remember an email that got passed around back when uh when uh G.W. Bush was running the first time with a father who was both president and the former director of the CIA. He had a brother who was the governor of the state, that the votes of which finally determined the outcome of the election. And it looked like such a setup, because it was. But backing off of that, just it appears – so ignoble, if you will, that, uh, you know, it's just this is our United States of America. I see that we have been joined by Rocky Anderson, of which I'm very pleased about. Rocky mm-hmm. has been a guest on A Better World Radio and TV, actually. Uh, a number of times because we are very interested in bringing forward the voices of third-party candidates because you will not find the mainstream media doing so, and we here at A Better World are really interested in creating a better world, and in order to do that, we need to hear the leading voices of the third-party candidates. And I want to just circle back first to say, George, I appreciated the point you made about the effect and influence, and I'd like to hear what Rocky has to say about this, of the third-party voices on stage televised like John Anderson had, actually, and like Ross Perot also did, and it moves the conversation. It stimulates the conversation. There's nothing like another voice to enliven and bring forward the subjects and the issues that are otherwise buried under the rug by the, by the uh, conventional candidates. And Rocky, you've been involved in stirring waters up for a while. Welcome to the show.
2: It's great to be with you, Mitchell, and really great to be on with George. Uh, I'm a huge fan of your book and have been talking about it all over the country. Uh, It it is so comprehensive, so fascinating, and enraging to see our democracy degraded so blatantly by this duopoly, the Republican and Democratic parties conspiring together to hijack those debates away from the League of Women Voters and then leave the public discourse so unbelievably impoverished.
1: Uh, Very true. Thank you how much for your kind words. It's an honor to be on the radio program with you.
0: Yeah, Rocky, you are one of those, I hate to say it, that are being excluded. You, who are the former mayor, two-term mayor of Salt Lake City, the 125th largest city in the country, you, you made such an impact during your mayoralty on the environment, on relationships in the city, on, uh, even on the national stage, you were recognized as the single mayor who was courageous enough to stand up and declare, uh, the importance of George W. Bush being impeached on sound legal grounds for, of course, having started a war illegally and, uh, you know, the FISA matters and on and on. How does it feel? I'm so sorry to even ask this question, but what does it feel to be excluded from what is rightfully your place in these televised debates?
2: Well, it's not only the debates. As George said, it's front to back in our electoral system, and these two parties have had utter control, and they've shut it down. And as you said, Mitchell, if you went to an Eastern European country and you saw these kinds of restrictions – on elections, you would say that we need to push them toward democracy. In fact, we did that with the Helsinki Accords in 1990, going over and lecturing them about what they needed for there to be a democracy. And this this is a document that comes out of our State Department, out of the U.S. Commission on Security and Cooperation in Europe. It says, among other things, that to be a democracy, you must, and I quote, From the United States' own document, you must respect the right of individuals and groups to establish in full freedom their own political parties or other political organizations and provide such political parties and organizations with the necessary legal guarantees to enable them to compete with each other on a basis of equal treatment before the law and by the authorities. Have you ever heard such hypocrisy when our democracy has been steamrolled over by these two parties where you can't get on the ballot in many of the states. It's utterly impossible. Folks in Oklahoma, they, they not only will not see anyone other than a Republican and Democrat on their ballots, but they're, they can't even write in a candidate of their choice. That's how truncated voters' choice is in this country. We're going to be on 15 ballots. George, you've got a lot of great anecdotes in your book. Let me tell you the latest one that we've experienced in terms of ballot access. Uh, We have worked so hard, put very limited resources into getting signatures on petitions, meeting all the very, very different requirements in so many states around the country, to get our name on the ballot. And in Mississippi, it's one of the first states that we got on. We met all the requirements. Everything was lined up. We were told at the last minute, after it was too late to remedy the situation, that one elector out of, I believe, there were 15, I don't know how many, but one person who signed on as elector, and that means that if we won a majority in the popular vote, this person would be our elector at the Electoral College. And that person had, apparently unbeknownst to him, his registration revoked because he had sex offender status. Well, it turns out, and this, of course, is unbeknownst to our campaign, unbeknownst to our volunteers that worked so hard to get us on the ballot. Apparently, he had a sexual relationship with a young woman who went into a bar underage, had fake ID, led this man to think that she was old enough, and because she wasn't, he now is, has a status of a sex offender. So because apparently a 17-year-old has fake ID, goes into a bar, has sex with somebody there, I'm not on the ballot, and the people of Mississippi don't have the choice to vote for me for President of the United States. Oh, my gosh. It's outrageous. Yeah, and I I, I I, I could tell you more stories like this. And in Vermont, if you have ten people on one sheet on a petition, and they're, they're from ten different townships, you have to drive that petition to each of those ten townships, to the township clerk, to get those clerks, most of whom don't know anything about this, don't know how to do the, what they're required to do, to get them to verify the signatures, so we had people, they told me it was somewhere around 70 or 80 different townships. So we had people trying to drive all over Vermont to find these clerks in all these townships and simply ran out of time. Well, we filed a lawsuit and we won the lawsuit. The court allowed us two more weeks to get the job done. But how astoundingly stupid is that requirement? What what a burden. And by the way, that burden isn't there for the Republican or Democratic parties. Because they're already on the ballot, they get grandfather status, and they just keep staying on year after year. In Michigan, my the name that I'm known by, the name that I always answer by, the name by which everybody knows me, Rocky, it's a nickname. We in Michigan will not allow the use of my name Rocky on the ballot. It's the only state in the country where we can't get on that way. Uh, every time I've run here uh, and for mayor, and I ran two times and won both times, they put my nickname in quotes. They ask, how do you want your name on the ballot? As long as you're not trying to defraud anybody, they do that if that's what you're, you, you're called by. In Michigan, they won't let us do it. I'm on as Ross C. Anderson. If somebody yelled out Ross in a crowd, I wouldn't even answer to it. And yet that is one of the restrictions we're facing. That's the kind of thing we're facing all over the country. And it's the Democrats and Republicans who have brought us to this point. And uh, the people of this country need to understand this doesn't just impact the candidates and the parties. This goes right to the heart of voter choice. If we truly want a democracy where the voters can have their choice between people that may have different points of view that that may bring us a different result over time than what we're seeing with this duopoly of the Republican Democratic Party. We need to stand up against this insanity. And one, one place I think we need to stand up with regard to the debates is to simply say we're all going to boycott the debates. We're not going to watch them. The television stations won't get their ratings. Uh, the the Commission won't get the money from the television stations and all these corporate sponsors. uh, We ought to be boycotting them as well. Send the message that we're not going to put up with this being done to our democracy anymore. I
0: understand, and I think it's a good point. However, unfortunately, it feeds again into their hand, based on a comment George made earlier about President Clinton, who was doing everything in his power to reduce the number of people watching the debates by arranging to have it uh, broadcast against, uh, at the same time, as the World Series. So
2: the, the, the playoffs, know, yeah. it's almost and, and... like
0: whatever you do, you're on the wrong side of history when it comes to this stranglehold on our democracy. You're a well, both it, of you.
2: Yeah, well, we're we're certainly worse off by not having the dialogue, by not seeing these people together, but now the debates have been reduced to these ridiculous little soundbite presentations by the candidates. There's no interaction. Uh, Can you imagine the difference? If I were on that stage talking about things that neither Romney nor Obama will ever talk about in this debate, you never hear the word poverty cross either of their lips. Last time during the debates, none of the uh, moderators mentioned the word poverty. Oh, excuse me. Mitt Romney's mentioned poverty once. He said he didn't care about the poor. Other than that, it hasn't <laughs> been discussed during this. Campaign. We're part of the
1: forty-seven <laughs> percent. You know, yeah. Well, there are so many when when you confront some of the political operatives in D.C. and people who have been very very loyal to Republican Democratic parties for decades about this issue. Now, first of all, they have no actual, uh, you know, uh, uh, on, they have no compelling logical response. I've never actually met a voter who's unaffiliated with, uh, you know, the Commission on Presidential Debates, doesn't agree with our arguments or what the three of us are making on this program. But when you confront someone who actually is deeply entrenched in the Commission or actually is a, is, a, is a part of the top echelons of the Republican Democratic Party on this, they will come right out at you and say, the reality is we're doing everything we can to protect the two parties because fundamentally this is a two party system. And what drives me completely crazy is that if you accept their argument, if you accept their argument, it doesn't matter how decrepit, how corrupt, how disconnected any of those two entities become from the, from the public. It does, that rationale, that idea that you must accept the Democrats or Republicans as your only viable options, no matter how much they deteriorate. we can disagree about how much they deteriorate. Doesn't, you know it doesn't really matter what your position on them today is. But if imagine. Both parties totally captured by, say, corporate interests or some other interest, totally disconnected from the American people, and you're going to tell the public, assuming 95 percent of them at, at that point are independents, still under those circumstances, still you cannot have a third-party voice. I think it is, it, you know, it's it's that vision, it's that it's that misunderstanding of what the argument is here. We're not we're not here saying, hey, there must be uh, additional voices in the presidential debate process because, you know, somehow democracy requires multi-party voices. No, we're saying something to the effect of if you only allow two voices to be on that stage, when the vast majority of the American people are yearning for a third-party alternative, you're allowing our democracy to become more of a a duopoly rather than an actual
2: democracy. Absolutely, George. Correct. you, You know, I've taken a look at the polls, obviously, on a number of issues. And I know in Utah people think that I'm this far-left liberal type, although I did serve eight years as mayor of Salt Lake City. But major issue after issue, my position, which is very different than Romney's and Obama's on, on so many of these issues, my position represents how the majority of the people in this country come down. So if you look, for instance, at bringing the troops home now from Afghanistan. That's what the majority of people want. We won't hear that from Obama or Romney. You'd certainly hear it from me and perhaps other third-party candidates. Ending the war on drugs is something the majority of the American people want. Neither of these candidates, neither of these parties will ever talk about it. I had to go down and, and speak at the Shadow Convention in Los Angeles in 2000 in conjunction with the Democratic Convention, in order to raise that issue, because neither of the major parties would discuss it, and they still won't this many years later. Uh, Breaking up banks that are too large to fell, uh, reinstituting some of the Depression-era protections that we had in place to prevent against an economic meltdown. Neither of these candidates are going to talk about that, because they're too busy sucking up to Wall Street. So it can have a
0: huge
2: impact on getting these issues out, creating a demand among the American people. And who knows, it might lead to the building up of a major alternative party so that they won't have this duopoly anymore, so that there will be a competitive situation. When I, in the 1980s, I was doing a lot of work just as a volunteer, just because I felt so strongly about it, against the Reagan foreign policy in Central America. And I was taking uh, groups of people down to Nicaragua so they could see for themselves what was going on. And we saw this very vibrant, open uh, election between seven parties from the far right to the far left, uh, people having free and equal time on the public airwaves, both radio and television and Democratic practice that we have never seen and probably will never see in this country. But I came back, and I remember President Reagan saying that it's a, a one-party Soviet-style sham election in Nicaragua. It's was just only one of many lies told by the Reagan administration. But think about that. He said it was a one-party Soviet-style sham election. In this country, we have a two-party American-style sham election. Compare that with the first ballot in South Africa after the end of apartheid. I've got one of those ballots in a frame in my study at home. The other night I counted up the number of people that were on the ballot for president, 18 candidates had their names, their pictures, the name of their parties, the, the logo for their parties, and the whole world rejoiced about the coming of democracy in South Africa. And what do we have in this country? We have the same tired duopoly caving in to the Wall Street interests, the interests of for profit insurance and pharmaceutical industries, depriving the military people this industrial country. complex. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we know that Washington is bought and paid for. It's time that we get people on that stage telling the truth to the American people. And, you know, I think the case for third parties and the impact they they can have was made so powerfully by uh, Tom Friedman. I certainly disagree with a lot of things he's said over the years, especially with regard to Iraq. And he does sort of a mea culpa in this book, by the way. But the book is entitled, and he wrote along with Michael Mandelbaum, the book's entitled That Used to Be Us. And the last chapter is... The greatest case laid out for the impact that third party or independent candidates can actually have. In fact, he says that if we had the right people out there and getting the exposure, they could have more impact on the future of this nation than the person that ultimately wins the election. Certainly happened Mm with Roosevelt. It happened in large part, especially in terms of budget priorities and our deficit spending, with Ross Perot being involved the first time around when he, when he was able to engage in the debates. And after he engaged, he uh, about tripled uh, his support among voters, a lot like Jesse Ventura. But Jesse Ventura went from, I believe, 10% in the polls to winning the election because he was allowed to debate. That's what a real democracy is. Indeed. You know, if
1: I can respond to one thing you're saying, Rocky, uh, is that to me, uh, and you mentioned this a little earlier. To me, the critical, the the, the critical role that debates ultimately can can play in our democratic process is functionally as an antidote to the influence of money. And what I mean, I mean that in two ways. You know, and this is the the first point is something that's getting more dangerous every day. Now that super PACs can give essentially unlimited donations to entities that coordinate their campaigns with the candidates, uh, you know, behind closed doors. What you're, what you're essentially seeing is multimillionaires doing what we used to see only in Russia. Multimillionaires endorsing specific candidates, giving 10 million dollar checks. Sheldon Adelson's uh, essentially reviving the campaigns or bolstering the campaigns of single individuals. And if this continues to grow in this fashion, it's going to be very, very difficult to argue that either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party are not fundamentally beholden to the interests of either individual wealthy contributors or large corporate interests that are making these massive unprecedented contributions and when that takes place and that both parties are uh, really at that point fundamentally captured by their interests by virtue of this uh, unregulated campaign finance system then the yearning for a, a more uh, honest third-party voice that will no longer be beholden to those interests increase so First of all, I think debate inclusion can function as an antidote to that. You let the third-party voice on stage, you're allowing a voice on stage that isn't going to necessarily be devoted to its funders, but rather be devoted to what is genuinely in the public interest. And the second point I'll just make real quickly is it's the, the actual process of campaigning can be replaced by, uh, instead of having you know consulted paid advertisements dictating the rise and fall in the, in the polls, you can allow debate performances to decide who is or is not a viable candidate. Indeed. Earlier this year, there was a Republican primary. There were 27 debates sponsored by multiple different organizations. There were usually six to eight candidates on stage. And what was the result? Got Establishment candidates like Rick Perry plummeted in the polls. Unknowns like Herman Cain reached co-frontrunner status. People like Newt Gingrich revived their campaigns. In other words, for the first time in probably 40 years, The Republican primary was principally decided, at least at that stage in the election, not by 30-second television commercials, but actually by the performance of candidates thinking on their feet on the debate stage. That is a critical function of the debate. I don't know why we only have three debates this year. Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas had eight three-hour debates in 1858. We should be having dozens of them, and that way the voters are actually making decisions based on those performances rather than distorting political ads.
2: And not only having more of them, but have but having them in different parts of the country, because they ignore the safe states, Utah, they just they write it off because uh, Mitt Romney knows he's going to win by the largest margin in Utah, uh, and uh, California, they're going to write off because they know that Barack Obama's got it in the bag. So we we need an independent approach to this, or a public demand that will be overwhelming so that we see these debates in different parts of the country and so that they're addressing not only the same tired old issues and aimed toward the few battleground states and their demographics, but where they're addressing issues that are important to people throughout the country.
0: Very true. And along the same lines as both of you are speaking of, I think that the town hall forum is another excellent um debate forum, it, it, or I should really say educational forum. I like the idea of people being able to ask the candidates directly what their questions are and what are their concerns, instead of just having an, a, a go-between in the form of a TV anchor, news person who are themselves essentially bought off on many different levels and they are concerned about their personal reputation, about how persistent they will be on on asking questions and follow up questions and the like. I say, who needs a broker? Why don't we go straight? While, of course, there's a role, very important role for the debates, I completely agree. I also think this could be well supplemented in different states, as you're suggesting, Rocky, <clears throat> of the, the town hall meetings where the candidate comes face-to-face with the people. What do you both think about that?
1: Uh, yeah, I actually have a very specific um, uh, response to that it's, it's very, you know, 1992 was the first time the town hall format itself Was introduced to the presidential debates Bill Clinton thought it would be a, a wonderful format for his particular social skills He thought he would be able to connect with the audience, so he suggested yeah. And that was, uh, that was adopted by the commission Well, in 1992, during that first town hall debate uh, Someone got up and asked President Bush a, a, a tough question They said, you know, Mr. Bush, how does the federal deficit affect you personally? He didn't really know how to answer that question. He started talking about numbers. He didn't get the question. He stumbled on stage. So what happened? Four years later, when they tried to hold a town hall debate, the candidates insisted that the audience members can't ask follow-up questions. Four years after that, ever since to this day, now when you watch a town hall debate that the commission is sponsoring, all the audience members have to submit their questions in advance before the debate to the moderator. The moderator throws out the ones he or she doesn't like, then selects the questions to be asked, points to the to the audience member who asked the question, and cuts off the microphone after the question has been asked. In other words, the audience members are now props, moderators asking all the questions, picking all the questions. It's just a perfect example of just how detailed the efforts are by the candidates to sanitize the formats and get rid of difficult and unpredictable questions, something I know, Ron, never be intimidated by.
2: And, and I find this so extremely yep. ludicrous in light of the unbelievably poor performance by our media in recent years. A Washington Mm -hmm. Post that that reports about Jessica Lynch and doesn't get one fact straight but serves the purpose of propaganda for the Army source of that information. Uh, You've got the New York Times that helped pave the way for our invasion and occupation of Iraq based on a pack of lies that were repeated day after day on the front page of that newspaper. Uh, so, you know, we're not hearing about the drones. I mean, have you have you read about the Stanford and New York University Law School's report on drones? Reports, and, and I have. And the, the impact that that's having? Uh, it, not only on the, the people on the ground, but in terms of our long-term security interests, it, it's we're not seeing it. In you the would think that media. the United
0: States, you would think that the United States, Rocky, was in the business of making enemies. Well, that's true. But my it my so point, though,
2: was, that you, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, that's that's a different issue. My point is that our media. Has so deserved this country, and who do we turn to to be the moderators? Do we go to yeah, knowledgeable exactly. professors in certain areas, or people that work or in the nonprofit sector, or consumer advocates, safety? Ad- no, they keep going. I mean, how many times has Lair been the moderator of these debates? <laughs> And it it really, I mean, I love the guy, but it just is really boring and not very informative or stimulating. And I I, I don't think since (laughs) Ross Perot came up with his sucking sound comment, I mean, how many (laughs) memories do people really have of, of important moments during these debates? Yes, indeed. It's a good point. But,
0: George, what you were saying is sadly that even the town hall designed originally to be a place to hear people speak directly has also been co-opted by the commission for presidential debates. Would this not be a place where the League of Women Voters could reassert their position
1: when it comes to that, that forum? That's a that's a that's a a great question, Mitchell. You know, I I um, work very closely with other pro democracy organizations on this issue. For example, tomorrow we're issuing a press release, backed by about 20 pro democracy organizations: Common Cause, Public Citizen, Rock the Vote. You know, the 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 bread and butter uh, pro democracy groups in the country, calling on the yes. commission to make public the secret contract that the Obama and Romney campaigns have negotiated this year, at the very least. The, the rules of the debates need to be made public so we can hold the candidates accountable. You know, if, if if Bob Dole and Bill Clinton had to exclude Perot in front of tens of millions of voters in 1996, they would have paid an enormous political price for doing so. And the very fact that they were under the, any sun, any real sunlight would have likely persuaded them that it wasn't worth that cost. You know, the the greatest benefit the commission gives to, the, to candidates is it allows them to operate behind closed doors in secrecy. Anyway, well, the league... Uh, won't sign on to that press release. The league uh, won't uh, uh, make efforts to reassert itself as a national debate sponsor. It was so burned by the commission in 1988. It was so devastated by uh, the two parties' uh, seizure of their most, you know, what they consider to be at the time one of their greatest public duties uh, that they've kind of forever, or at least for the time being, have removed themselves from the national presidential debate political process. They don't dispute anything we said, They're a total, they totally agree with us. They think the commission is a fraud and I think that the debates ought to be in hands of the nonpartisan sponsor. But they're not willing to, um, at this point, uh, take the risk of devoting serious resources and time to challenge the two parties on this particular issue. Instead, they resign themselves to playing instrumental roles at gubernatorial, senatorial, and congressional debates around the country. And I've done my best to push them, and I'll continue to do so, because no entity in the country has as much credibility as the League does when it comes to debates.
2: Yeah, Isn't that amazing yeah. that our democracy has... Been so debased
1: Excluded by democracy. these two
2: parties <laughs> that the League yeah. of Women Voters won't take this on. That they're that they're, and and this is what happened when the two parties hijacked the debates away from the League of Women Voters. They they basically issued the press release. You may have already talked about this earlier. It's in George's book. It's saying that for us to be part of this now given what the two parties are insisting would be to, to help perpetrate a fraud on the American people. But I, I just think we all need to stand up. Somebody has got to take this on, and uh, it needs to be exposed. And I, I I, really do think a boycott movement, a popular across the political spectrum people's movement on this issue would be so po- it it, it it it's the only thing I think that's going to work because especially these corporate sponsors, they're going to care if they're affiliated with something that's being seen as such a sham. Uh, I'd you like know, to know from both of you what you think because I am completely puzzled by the fact. Well,
0: you know that we're dealing with a matter, Rocky, as we have discussed a number of times of such rot at the core, we're dealing with, as Chris Hedges so often says so well, the effects of empire that you know we're scraping at the surface of an inherently uh, rotten problem, a corrupt issue at the core of our democracy. Our democracy exists just on the most superficial of levels, what with the NDAA and the Patriot Act and other completely unconstitutional, immoral, egregious kinds of legislation which are on the books, including by the way, Citizens United, so we don 't even have a Supreme Court worth its worth its worth merit anymore so How do you take, is the question, how do you take a completely molded system, a completely yeasty system, and turn it into a healthy body politic? I I really do not know the answer to that. My my suspicion is, and George, I would like to hear what you have to say, needless to say as well, is that education and shining the light on what is really going on would be the thing – and perhaps it's the only thing that could move the American public off of their slumbering butts, with all due respect, into a state of panic. And action Because without that Unfortunately our democracy Is being bought As Greg Pallas so well put it In his book The best democracy money can buy It's been bought and sold And paid for And there's very little way in For any of us anymore George your thoughts
1: I'll, I'll, uh, two separate thoughts. One related to Rocky's specific questions about the viability of a boycott. I, you know, I think Rocky that a, a boycott of, of of the sponsors actually be quite effective. I think a boycott of the debates are unlikely to to work, and you know, I think it'd be difficult to argue that without, um, you know, coming off to at least uh, many many democracy groups as. Uh, uh, pushing in the direction that would inform the electorate less. But I think a boycott, you know, anheuser Bush has been the principal sponsor of the presidential the Commission on Presidential Debates for its entire existence. That's not part of the reason why we've seen so many debates in St. Louis and why if you go to a, a, many of the debates you have you know Scantily clad anheuser Bush girls passing out pamphlets denouncing beer taxes <laughs> uh which is just ridiculous. <laughs> but but yeah, I think it's of a boycott of anheuser Bush I'm sorry?
2: I said I've never been there. I didn't know that that was going on.
1: <laughs> oh, you, it's really something to see. There's after the debates there's this, uh, there's this giant anheuser bush tent and all the top reporters and political consultants and audience members and do- and corporate donors are getting together are drinking tent, yeah they're drinking Bud, and then, as your Bush curls are pants out there it just doesn't you know it' it's it's not the way it ought to be when the league would sponsor these events they would they would struggle just to get five thousand dollar contributions from foundations and corporations and unions to put these shows on the league the commission by by comparison is able to raise millions of dollars in contributions from major corporate entities because the corporations see the contribution to the to the commission often as a kind of soft money donation they get to essentially give to two major parties and rub shoulders with their top aides at the debates themselves and, you know so it's it's just perceived as a very political contribution but i, I think a, a, a boycott of anheuser Bush, if really done effectively and 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 it got some real steam uh, in, in the right political election cycle, could could move, could actually move anheuser Bush to withdraw sponsor. That'd be a very effective vehicle to to demonstrate precisely why and the overwhelming public demand that there is a, a desire for a more honest and nonpartisan sponsor to take the reins of our most important public forums. Uh, on the point that that um, Mitchell was raising on how to. On the, on the significance of transparency Mitchell, I agree strongly with you That transparency is the best antidote to this process And I just mean this about when it comes to the presidential debates I know I've said this point earlier today But, you know, if, if the candidates had to sponsor their own debates In a local gym around the corner And, of course, every video, every news station in the world would cover it Tens of millions of voters would watch it But if they were accountable for the very debates that were going to be structured There would be much more democratic debates it would be much harder for the candidates to look in the camera and say, I'm going to exclude Rocky, I'm going to exclude Ross Perot, I'm going to exclude Ralph Nader and Pat Buchanan, even though the vast majority of voters want to see these guys on the same stage. Uh, They can't do that. So to me, sunlight is the greatest antidote, and secondly, building a citizens' debate commission backed by enormous popular support and a cross-section of civic groups from the left, right, and the center that would push and aggressively fight to displace the commission as national sponsor.
0: I do want to mention,
2: um, Amy Amy Goodman. uh, We're heading
0: toward last comments at this point. We've run over a
2: bit. Well, this addresses the very issue uh, of getting other voices out there. Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! is going to have Jill Stein and me on her program next Wednesday, and I believe it's going to be contemporaneous with the, the debate They'll show 10 minutes of the debate, come to Jill Stein, who's a Green Party candidate for president, and me for our response, then go back to 10 minutes of the debate, then back to us. So uh, we are, in in a way, going to be participating if people tune in to Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! next Wednesday evening.
0: That's wonderful. And her show is also aired at 8 am every day monday through friday in new york city in other words eastern daylight time last last comments george and last comments rocky uh,
1: the only the only the, the only thing i just want to emphasize is the, the significance of this issue i know uh, that you know people sometimes can be rather dismissive of just how valuable these presidential debates are but at their core even if when you're watching these events They're not uh, the most substantive and thrilling of of events. They are the gatekeepers to the election. If a candidate gets in, he's instantly granted granted credibility. If a candidate is excluded, he's deemed marginal and unworthy of any press attention or voter attention. So by virtue of of that power, it's critical that these debates be in the hands of someone who actually cares about the democratic process, not in the hands of people like Frank Perinkoff, who co-chairs the commission right now, is the former chair of the Republican Party and the nation's bleeding gambling lobbyist. We need civic leaders running our most important public forums, not gambling lobbyists and political operatives. And to me, the um, consequences couldn't be more important. Very true. Well
0: put. Just tell us, George, who are the other major corporate sponsors of the Commission on Presidential Debates so we could uh, enact something Rocky is suggesting of a boycott of the corporate sponsors themselves?
1: It changes every four years. I mean, there hasn't, the only one that's been extremely consistent is give millions of dollars as anheuser Bush. But in the past, we've seen entities like uh, U.S. Airways, uh, Bank of America. Uh, this time around is the Bottled Water Association, which is <laughs> rather unusual. Uh, oh, and there my. is some foundation funding. I mean, they've gotten a lot of heat on this particular issue, and you can tell they're trying to diversify the money because they know it's just not very attractive. But this year you've got uh, Southwest Airlines. Uh, You've got uh, a law firm called Crowell & Mooring, uh, Phillips Electronics. Uh, You know, it's every four years it's it's a bit different except for Anheuser-Busch. They're always there.
0: I got it. I got it. Budweiser always lives on. Wonderful. Rocky, your last words for our
2: audience about this. Well, Mitchell, the the conflicts are so abundantly clear. Can you imagine, for instance, the Bottled Water Association – letting me on the stage when I led a national campaign against bottled water, probably the greatest <laughs> cons- consumer scam and environmentally disastrous practice in our time? I don't think so. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, these. this is a, an establishment-run event under the, the pretense of a democratic tradition in this country and it's completely undermined any democratic characteristic Process. that it once had. It's dangerous. It, it and our entire electoral system is like that. But it goes beyond the electoral system. Once these people get into office, our government is run exactly the same way. It's the people who pay for the campaigns, pay for the lobbyists, I mean, the telecommunication companies that got. Legislation passed, and then Senator Obama, after he promised to join a filibuster against it, actually voted for it. They bought legislation from Congress to get retroactive immunity for their federal felonies. Now, who gets to do that? That is government that is bought and paid for, and it's so blatant every single day. It starts With our electoral system works all the way through. That's why we have so many public policy disasters. That's why we have the budget problems we have. That's why we have the military-industrial complex that is so out of control. That's why we have student tuition, non-dischargeable and bankruptcy, that now exceeds The entire amount of credit card debt in this country hanging over people, that's why we had the housing bubble. That's why we had the economic meltdown, because of the favors given by Democrats and Republicans alike at the behest of the financial institutions that were paying for these people's elections. President Obama received more from Wall Street than any candidate had ever received before. It's happening again this time around. Probably more money going to Romney, though, from Wall Street, but they're both raking it in. Millions and millions of dollars, and I'll tell you, Wall Street knows how to get a very good return on its investment, all at the expense of the American people.
0: Very true. Rocky Anderson, thank you so much for being a guest today and sharing your thoughts and views with us. It's uh, great to have a third-party candidate on A Better World speaking truth to power it's wonderful thank you so and much and if i could and just
2: mention we'll people could go to dot yes. and you'll see a lot of good substantive information about all sorts of issues including of course yes. this one and uh i just want to mention again it's been great to be on with you george and uh i i am such a a huge fan of what you've done you put so much work into this book have made it an interesting read And it's something that is so important that the American people are aware of.
1: Thank you, Rocky. You've long been one of my political heroes. It's been a real pleasure to be on this program with you.
2: Very good.
0: Thank you both, gentlemen. George Roth, thank you so much for, I will corroborate what Rocky just said, Uh, the Mm -hmm. author of No Debate, How the Republican and Democratic Democratic Parties secretly control the presidential debates. Thank you so much, George, also for your good work. It's a real contribution that we so need. And uh, your website is www.opendebates.org. Is that correct? That's it. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you both, gentlemen. And I'll Thank speak you. again with you soon. Absolutely. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It's fabulous to have such thoughtful caring men who are really looking to advance democracy in our country and blow the whistle on the corruption that exists that is rationalized through and through, over and again. We're now entering a new cycle of disclosure and and transparency and it doesn't appear transparent just yet but I tell you, we are moving into that time where the veils are being lifted on all levels and the true motivations and intentions of people are becoming clearer and clearer I invite you all to come to our website, www.abetterworld.tv. Join our mailing list, our weekly newsletter announcing who we have as guests on our weekly radio and TV shows broadcast here out of New York City. It's always a pleasure. I am so deeply grateful to all of those who listen on a one-time basis or a regular basis and become part of the solution we're offering here through education and elevation and inspiration at A Better World. Again, this is Mitchell J. Raven, and I look forward to seeing you all and speaking with you next week.